Welcome back once again to this EMCC UK podcast series on the topic of internal coaching supervision. Today's guest is Dee Donnelly. Dee is an executive coach working in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea and has her own private coaching practice. Dee is also chair of the EMCC UK's Public Sector Forum. In today's episode, our host Catherine Sunjin Brooks and Jeremy Gom discuss with Dee the role of group supervision for internal coaches, as well as why it can be important to continue working with a supervisor even when an internal coach might not be doing much coaching. And finally, whether supervision should be mandatory for all internal coaches. This is another great conversation in the series. If you're new to the podcast, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Our guest today is Dee Donnelly. I first met Dee when I was chairing the EMCC's Public Sector Forum. I had over 20 years working in central government, but Dee's background is in local government. When I moved on in 2016 to found the Third Sector Forum, Dee took over from me as chair of the Public Sector Forum, which still meets regularly. But today, we're going to be talking to Dee in her capacity as lead for coaching and mentoring in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. She's also founder of a bi-borough coaching hub with Westminster Council. And I know that Dee is a particular advocate for group supervision. Well, before Dee joins us, Catherine, do you have any thoughts on the merits of group supervision as opposed to -to one-to-one? Well, for myself, as an independent coach, I've always preferred one-to-one supervision. That's just a personal preference because it means that all the time is mine, so I feel I get maximum value out of it. But I did have a patch about 12 years ago when I joined a supervision group for six months, um, just to see if I prefer it. Um, I think it, it didn't work so well for me. It may just have been the supervisor, but we seem to spend a lot of time on the group contracting side of things and talking about dynamics within the group, whereas what I really wanted to talk about was, was client work. Um, there was also one coach within the group who had very decided views and um, was a bit judgmental, and I found that quite hard. But I absolutely do recognise the value of, of having the input of other coaches, really, on one's issues. You get, you get sort of um, six times the value in a way, and I did like that. What about you, Jeremy? Well, I do both, and I get a great deal of value out of both. I, I've enjoyed regular group supervision with a mix of coaches for several years, and I found great learning from the experience and wisdom of other coaches, as you were suggesting, and of the different styles of supervision. So sometimes we have an external supervisor, uh, sometimes we supervise as peers, um, and I've developed new friendships from that. So a, a good broad sweep of pluses for group supervision. My one-to-one supervisor brings a completely different perspective. He's completely different from me and challenges my thinking in different ways. So 
I'm an advocate of both approaches. So Dee, uh, very, welcome to you Dee this morning. Uh, do you have any comments on what Catherine and I have just been talking about? Uh, thank you both. Lovely to be here. Um, yes, I've got loads to say, but what I wanted to start off with was um, I'm a co-founder, so I should have made that clear. I, I, I don't. I, I'm thoroughly enjoyed all the work I've done in building coaching and mentoring across West London and across local government, um, and I do that very much with others. So to say I was a founder. I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that. I know that I rely on my colleagues to make these things happen. So I just wanted to say that. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So group supervision, what do you what do you think? So um, for me, because my background, if we go back to where I came from, it was pediatric social work. Um, and so I started to have group supervision with a, a, a pediatric psychiatric consultant back in the 1980s. So it's kind of in my blood to do these things in groups. Mm. Um, so I think that probably why I moved towards it quite easily in the coaching field. Um, and also the, the rather sort of practical element that um, when we came to looking at how we were going to provide supervision in coaching for our kind of nascent coaching groups, um, there was not a lot of money around. So how do you make supervision happen for a group of people um, at a sort of economic rate? So, so I think there were two things. One was I was comfortable with it. I believed in it. And contrary to what you'd experienced, Catherine, I had experienced a real richness in that gathering of people together. Um, plus, it was really the only way we were going to get it through was to say, you know, there'll be six or eight of us. Um, so there was the economics as well. And how does that work inside Kensington and Chelsea now? So now is a whole different ballgame. So since um, we set up the coaching hub, which was with Westminster, so that came as an initiative from um, a Byborough colleague who's a real coaching uh, champion um, and brought both Westminster and Kensington together. We'd been working jointly for some time, but to, to establish a hub. And the timing was brilliant because in Westminster, they were very much wanting to build on, on the coaching and mentoring in a way that we'd sort of stepped back from, to be honest, in Kensington because of different things that had happened for us. Um, and so now the coaching is available through an external coach uh, who are as a range of coaches. And they're actually they're called Coach Doc and they're doctors. They come from the health service, but they're coaches as well. So they bring that kind of dual uh, experience of working in the public sector and being coaches as well as GPs or, or whatever it is. So, so that's what the current offer looks like. Very good. And I, I wondered, in terms of um, group supervision, one of the things that people really value about it is where the groups are always have the same members. So it does become a real safe place. Everybody knows each other, trusts each other. And I know there are some organisations where because they have group supervision fairly infrequently, it tends to be different people showing up to the different group supervision um, events as it were and therefore that it's quite difficult sometimes to establish a group that sticks together and has common membership what, what, what's your experience of that so initially so if we go back to when um, we commissioned it we, we got 
because of my previous experience, I went to the TAVI <laughs> and we got a, a brilliant coach and consultant psychiatrist uh, at the TAVI. So he's a coach. And a, so I, I sort of went back to my roots on that one. And we were a closed group. So we were a maximum of eight. No, well, we weren't always eight. Sometimes we were the five of the eight or the six of the eight. But but that's how that worked. And we met um, bi-monthly and it was an afternoon so it was enormously rich for that. And as you say, Catherine, we really built our ability to be more confident and safe in that space, which was great. Yeah. The current offer with Coach Doc, um, or the coaching offer for supervision, which Westminster very generously pay for, I have to say, but it's available to Kensington as well as Westminster coaches. Um, it's still in its kind of founding time. So, so uh, it's probably been on offer now for about eight months, something like that. And so we're still endeavouring to get people to go. So I don't think we've got that boundary around it yet because we're still encouraging people to go to it. And we've got a lot of coaches, but a lot of them aren't actually coaching at the moment. So unless you've got something you're actually working with, going to supervision doesn't obviously doesn't make sense. Well, I'd have to disagree with you there, actually, Dee. I, I think supervision... I knew as soon as I said that, I knew you were going to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's what we're here for. Um, yes, I think supervision is well worthwhile for those who aren't coaching for the very fact that they're not coaching because it provides them with some form of connection with that skill set which they are underusing. And often they do lose confidence and going to supervision, even when they haven't got something specific yeah. to be supervised about mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of a case history, they yeah. still have themselves. Now, you make a brilliant point, Jeremy, and I will make a note of it. This is what it's all about, learning. It never stops. So I shall go back and see what we can do to prompt those who aren't coaching to also make use of. The thing I worry about, the provision is there and it will disappear if people don't use it. We know that, don't we? Mm-hmm. And there's only, you know, we need to be careful with money and how we invest time and resources. So that you make a very good point, Jeremy. And I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think well, a little, sorry, I was gonna say a little later in this conversation, we can talk about how one sells supervision, if you like, to coaches or how one encourages them to uh, appreciate the value of it. Sorry, Jeremy, what were you going to say? I was just going to move on with with uh, to ask Dee to to give us a rundown of how you got into coaching and supervision in the first place, Dee? So um, because of my paediatric social work background, uh, so uh, supervision was always very, uh, very much part of the work that I I did. Uh, And that had been um, provided as a a group supervisory space uh, within the Royal Free Hospital where I worked as a practitioner. Um, and being part of a sort of family therapy team and looking at a systemic work. So it was about working in groups. So so I have that close to my heart and have have felt the benefit of it. And then in local government, um, in pushing through ILM programmes so that managers can become more confident with using coaching skills. So not for managers to become coaches, but with a level three or a level five to be able to be really confident about what coaching looks like and how to incorporate those into their everyday work, but also to be able to offer standalone coaching outside of their line management responsibilities. So with that up and running, there were two things. One is obviously with the ILM, you need to offer supervision. 
So it's part and parcel of a requirement, which makes it much easier to run with. Um, and you can have a lot of fun with that as well, because you can make that that requirement really beneficial and not just in terms of, you know, what are the assignments, but what's happening with your practice and what are you learning? And so that, that that's great. Um, and then the, secondly, is that once you've got a cohort of coaches, no matter how small, that are actually out there doing the work, then you want to be able to pull that together and support them, but also that we learn together about what's going on, you know, what's coming up, um, what is it people say they need when they need coaching, and um, is this always, um, you know, is it always about a problem, or are people coming because they, uh, they're really uh, high achievers and, and want to do better, or have they got, rela- you know, it's all that, so it's, and that, and that provides um, great insights as well. Excellent, thank you. So how long ago is it that you you actually became a coach yourself? Tracy? Oh, gosh. Um, I got my diploma in 2003. Ah, same year as me. I know. Yeah. Sounds like now, doesn't it? And, and tell us about how, how coaching actually got started in Kensington and Westminster. Oh, sorry, Kensington, Chelsea. Kensington, Chelsea. And, uh, and sort of a bit about the scale and scope of it that you're responsible for now. So how did it begin and how did you get to where you are now? So it, it originally started through mentoring, in actual fact, because um, shortly after going to Kensington, we got David Clutterbuck in and we launched a mentoring scheme. Um, and that was really quite um, ahead of our time, I have to say, proudly. Mm-hmm. Um, and David came in and shared all of his kind of best practice and approaches. And so we launched a, you know, a, a quite a discreet internal scheme. We probably had at any one time about... 12 working pairs um, um, and they were quite resource intensive. We used to do the matching ourselves. And so I, I led on that, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And of course, David always said, um, coaching is, I mean, sorry, mentoring is coaching plus. Mm-hmm. So mentoring was coaching. So I loved that. I thought, oh, great. Mentoring's coaching, super. Because what I realized the conversations I was having as I stepped away from social work so I was having conversations based on Gerald Egan and based on Carl Rogers and based on all of those kind of key theoretical backgrounds and skills that I'd had as a social worker. But I was using them in, in a slightly different way. And that prompted me to go and get my diploma because I thought, actually, I need to be really clear about what coaching is as opposed to what having a, you know, a therapeutic conversation might be or whatever. And, and to move away from the potential of pathology I mean, in pediatric social work, a lot of the work, you know, you can appreciate this comes because people are in trouble. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that might need fixing or changing in some way. And so the wonderful thing about doing my diploma was that I didn't I could leave that problem orientation and come into a much more um, kind of outcome, if you like. What is it you, you want to achieve and a future focus rather than needing to understand the past? Mm. And so if we we're thinking about sort of uh, numbers and who they are really uh, did you did you when you started off with coaches as opposed to mentors yes. or whether you or whether if you renamed them I don't know how, um, how sort of has it is it something that has been expanding incrementally or have you had your setbacks as often in this case both <laughs> <laughs> So if I take mentoring, um, that's been on a really interesting uh, growth uh, 
path. I was going to say journey, but it's such a cliche. So I, I looked for another word there. Um, so what happened there was pretty early on, there was um, a women's development group in Hammersmith and Fulham that said, we hear you've got a mentoring scheme. Come and talk to us. So quite early on in, in looking at how we could have and setting up mentoring programs within Kensington, it started to bubble up across London, admittedly our neighbours. So we had Hammersmith interested. We had Westminster interested. We had City of London interested. Um, and, and it went from there. And over the next few years, we went from a small pilot group of five, which we then properly assessed and paid for external uh, assessment. We had wonderful support from our chief execs. Okay. So that lent a real kind of senior commitment to it and an expectation. You know, we expect people to want to develop themselves. So, so that was that was wonderful. And then you have to go back a while, but you might remember something called, uh, I'm trying to think where we, we got we got some funding from Capital Ambition. Do you remember that? No, I don't. Yeah, Capital Ambition, which which was part of London Councils. Mm. And it could you could bid for money and it would give you money for different things. So I put in a bid for us to have, and it was a small amount of money, so that we could go away from this intense resource facility of matching mentors to uh, an online piece. So we got five grand, you know, peanuts, essentially. Mm. And Skillgate were brilliant. And they basically said, well, if we can make this work from you, it could be a good business thing for us. And sure enough, they got Thames Water, they got different. So by giving us, um, you know, a deal, once they could talk about what they were doing with us, other people bought it off them for them, which was it was a kind of win-win. So once we got that up and running, we within about a year, we had about 16, 18 London boroughs across London who were all members of um, my mentor. So it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? And the bit that, of course, was the setback was that you did have to have still resources and commitment of local people in those in those each of those um, local councils to be able to give time to it. So what what I think we suffered from was um, a kind of tick box. We offer mentoring. Here you go. We join my mentor, and then of course you get a flood of perhaps. You know, we we had some we had some councils that had forty mentees but three mentors. Ah, tricky. Yeah, well, yes. Well, because presumably you were. Some people were being mentored by somebody from another council. I mean, it was supposed to be a network, yeah? Yeah, it was a network. And we said that you can't join the network until you've got at least 10 mentors that you can quality assure. That makes sense. Um, which, of course, it makes sense. But, of course, what happened was, unless you keep your eye on it, and I endeavoured to, but it, it grew like topsy, is that then you get – but I think the learning is loads of people wanted mentors – Mm-hmm. Um, but it's back to so come on, come on, you people. Where are you mentors? You've got to rock up as well here. Yes. So, so there were setbacks for sure, and I think that that tension remains. To be honest, I think that we would all say within our boroughs the tension remains between getting people to be mentors and and make the time, yeah, and the expectation that you will do it. Um, and we did we did have an expectation that people would make the time. And if you've got that kind of cultural expectation, it makes a huge difference. But that's one borough. So you need every borough to have that. And, it, and it's a pick and mix. And within your own borough, what kind of numbers did you get to in terms of 
coaches stroke mentors? Yeah, so we probably got to about 25 mentors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they would have been from kind of middle managers up. Um, and uh, we we set up, we agreed that the ratio could never be any more than two to one. So if you've got 20 mentors, the maximum mentees you could have would be 40. And that that's a so we always had um, and I, I should have looked this morning. I'm sorry I didn't. But I last time I looked, I think we had 24, 25 mentors and we have about 28, 29 mentees. So we're quite balanced. Okay. Um, but but of course the the facilities, which is the you know the online thing, allows us to look at what the other boroughs are doing, and you can still see there's some um, uh, t- top heavy uh, numbers there. Mm-hmm. And you have some coaches too. Yes. Yeah, so coaching is quite different, but similar. So coaching went down the ILM route. So uh, with coaching, uh, we first started with a, an ILM level three to enable managers to become more confident in using coaching skills. So it was called um, Workplace Coaching, a certificate in it. Right. Um, We ran it as a pilot with, I think we had 12 managers the first time we ran it. And then then it was popular, which was great. So it was popular. And we ran it for, I think, about three years. Um, and we would have two cohorts a year. So we would have had, I think, by the end of it, about 120 people that had gone through it, something like that. It was, it was jolly good. Um, not all got their certificates. But that's the inevitability of the ILM, I think. But they all really engage with the practice. But when it comes to writing those assignments, it's uh, it's always a different matter. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, um, and then we moved away from the qualification on the basis that maybe it was too much to ask people to do the assignments. And really what we were wanting was to develop the practice. So how could we focus on developing the practice? And we ran internal workshops around developing coaching approach. Um, And then we we had, as you will know, the... um, a rather sort of catastrophe in our borough. Well, no, it wasn't rather. It was a bloody catastrophe and tragedy around Grenfell. And in um, uh, coming back from that, we then looked at what our coaching offer was and we thought actually it was time to offer the ILM Level 5 um, because it was a foundation degree level. We were going to offer it to a small group that were really really committed to it and it enabled us to then get back onto raising the profile of coaching but making that offer to to managers um and and that that has gone well and of course within that has been the supervisory element again yes brilliant i mean that's a a, a lot and i think um we were going to talk about the apprentice scheme a little bit later but you also have an apprentice scheme i think don't you yes so the ilm's finished now um, we're still helping a few people get through it, but yeah, it's moved over to apprenticeships. I don't actually work in the apprenticeships team. It's gone because there's a whole load of apprenticeships um, of which coaching is one. But between Ken's, I'll, I'll tell you about it later then. <laughs> Have you heard about the EMCC UK special interest groups? These groups cover a broad range of interests, including health, coaching psychology, education, mentoring, and much more. 
Maybe you would like to join one of our special interest groups, or maybe you'd like to set up a special interest group of your own. Contact info at emccuk.org, where our friendly administration team will be on hand to help. Alternatively, visit the EMCC UK website, choose events, and select special interest groups. Well, you were talking about um, supervision being part of the ILM training program mm, for yeah. coaches. Do your mentors have access to supervision as well? Uh, and and how, do you, how do you sell it to both your coaches and your mentors? Uh, we have in the past attempted to get our mentors to gather together. But I have to say, every time we've tried it, it's failed like a sort of damp squib. <laughs> I think the sort of, you know, please make some more time for something. Just as much as in theory, they love the idea of it. When it comes to it, it, it I don't think there's the kind of space for them, really. However, that doesn't mean to say we give it up because we do we do keep trying. Um, but again, Jeremy, thank you for nudging me because um, I will have a conversation to see whether or not Coach Doc might well be able to offer something to mentors as well within that space. Why not? I hadn't thought of that. Mm. And I think that's that's a really neat way of making the most of those resources that we've got and, and, uh, and so that we don't lose them, in fact. Yeah. Is there any one-to-one supervision uh, that is available at any time or do any of your coaches take it up on their own anyway? So um, we offer 45-minute um, virtual coaching sessions and anyone can book them. So if I was a coach wanting to have some specific space to talk about something one-to-one, I would sign up for one of those. They're all run by unqualified executive coaches. Those are one-to-one supervision sessions? So one-to-one coaching. So my take on that is that you would take something and say to your uh, executive coach, this is something I'm working on and use that space for 45 minutes to be able to work it through. Okay. So would you regard that as peer supervision? No, I wouldn't actually. You'd still call it coaching? It's good. Yes. Yes, I would. I would. Yes. Okay, so it, there's no actual one, one-to-one supervision then in that case? There's no um, availability of that? No, there, there's no funding for that. Well, indeed, so. <laughs> okay, do you know if any, if, do you have any, you don't have any full-time coaches, do you, inside the organisation? Uh, well, yes, we do. We have, well, oh. so for example, I'm a, a qualified coach. Um, my colleagues... Sue Pierce and Gloria Vidal are qualified coaches. Um, in Westminster, we have Nadine, Tim. So there's probably at least six of us who work in LNOD who are also executive coaches. But they're, not working, but they're not working full time as coaches. No, no. It's, it's being a coach as well as other things. You're quite right. Yes. Mm, yes. Uh, so do any of you have one-to-one, one-to-one supervision out externally provided? Or do you rely on the group supervision that's part of your program? I have group supervision outside of the program <laughs> because I'm also a coach for many different organisations. So right. I do. Yeah. Um, the thing that does has been helpful though is that supervision with the ILM because I do that within Kensington, but I also do that 
for level sevens in different organizations because I'm a freelancer. Yes. So so that so that's been a really marvelous way of sort of uh, crossing over my learning and bringing it back and taking it from one place to another. And what is the what is the take up of supervision? You were you were indicating earlier that it was sometimes difficult to encourage people to go to supervision if they weren't doing any coaching at the time. So it sort of goes out of mind. For those who are doing regular coaching, is there an enthusiasm for supervision? How is how do you get the feel for it in inside mm-hmm. the council? So we've been running it. So it was uh, Nadine would have set that up through Coach Doc for mm-hmm. the hub. Um, We started off with about 40 coaches in the hub across both Westminster and Kensington and Chelsea. Um, The numbers who have taken up face-to-face coaching with CoachDoc, or virtual, actually, to be honest, is really low. I don't actually know the numbers. Um, We meet as um, as a coaching hub kind of governance group once a month, Um, and I've got one coming up in a well, actually, I think it's tomorrow. <laughs> I think it's tomorrow. Um, so I'll get a sense tomorrow of where the numbers are, but they've been very low. And we have been talking about how we can encourage people to take it up. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think, as you both said, so I might be a coach, but I'm also an L&D engagement consultant in Kensington. So I run workshops this afternoon. I'm going to run a workshop on maintaining resilience, you know, skilled candor. So there's so many other things that we do that, how do we get people to just invest in this this coaching skill mm. um, and grow that? And I think uh, I think it's a slow burn, to be honest, to get people in it. And I think you just have to. Well, we are sort of keep going with it. But I liked what you said earlier about. Uh, firstly, there's the even if you're not coaching, sign up for this because you'll learn something. Mm. And then the other piece about actually mentors, making it available to mentors too. Yes. I mean, we've talked to quite a few people about how they engage their coaches in, in supervision. And uh, it, it, it's it's interesting how some organisations find it more difficult than others. But I think it's often linked to how much coaching the coaches are doing. Because if you've got a couple of clients or even three let's say Mm. you know ethical dilemmas or just sort of issues which one wants to chew over with someone are likely to come up much more often than if you're coaching very infrequently and I think there is something about simply how much experience you're getting um, from coaching before you begin to really understand the value of supervision and what it can offer. Yeah, so what we have done, slightly tangentially, is we offer CPD sessions. So, you know, you may not be coaching anyone, but come and find out about. So we might do, um, we did something. Well, we had Jenny Rogers, actually, was wonderful. She talked about her new book, and and that was wonderful because she's got a huge experience around coaching and could talk about so many different aspects of, you know, how it's so much about us as well as, the person we're working with and that whole bit about that um, equality and partnership in, in the relationship. So we do that. And in fact, we did something. I did something. I've done a couple of things on um, the seven-eyed model just to sort of say, look at how coaching and, and supervision can really fit together in a way that can enable us 
to be more sort of objective about what's going on for ourselves. That's um, interesting that you raise that model. Are there any other models that that you find particularly helpful in supervision? So we've stayed with the seven-eyed model as a, a, a recommend, because again, you go back to the qualification that we've been working with, you pick something, then, then there's a consistency and everyone understands it. So that, that was the one we went for because uh, I've been working with that one for some time and it makes sense. But no, my, in my own supervision, the, um, my supervisor brings all sorts of different approaches, you know, through, um, through kind of riffing, like as if we're we're a sort of band, yeah. So so we're kind of open forum, um, but she's a psychotherapist as well. So I think there's something about how you blend your approach. Yes, I, I raised that because um, uh, a, a colleague and I ran supervision sessions for a charity, uh, group supervision sessions, and um, we asked them in advance if we could trial some different methods with them. Uh, so that they could, we could learn them, and they could learn them at the same time. Uh, and not only did it it help us, it helped them because it gave them new techniques to use in their coaching. Mm. So um, and insights into how they coach. So mm. it, it, I found it a very valuable way of uh, adding CPD into the into the supervision session, as it were. Yeah. Absolutely mm. terrific. But we we do. Well, we have uh, with the, with the apprenticeship program. To be honest, I'm not sure it, it's gone over to the apprenticeship team that run it with all the others. But with the ILM, obviously, we did have one to one when people had to submit a recording. So we asked people because it was during COVID. I couldn't observe their practice, so they submitted a recording, and um, that was hugely, uh, I think, helpful because I would what they did is they recorded a session and then they watched it themselves and assessed themselves. Yes. And then sent the assessment to me. And then we kind of uh, had a look at it together. And we, we had one session, which was fantastic where people agreed they would bring a clip of something that was very powerful for them, either a cock up or something they were proud of. It really didn't matter. <laughs> and of course, what was lovely about that is that, um, they were, were, were small. There were four, four, four colleagues I was working with, and they were just all so appreciative of each other, as well as their ability to learn from each other mm. about the different approaches or uh, the different struggles. You know, when you're learning to coach, that whole bit about you know, did I ever have a goal in that conversation? It seemed to be going round in circles, or um, I think I was trying to give them advice in disguise, or yes. um, yeah, etc. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and it never goes away either, does it? Now you mentioned it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I always, what do I say? I always say, um, I'm, I'm a sort of work in practice or something like that. I mean, one never gets there, really. Absolutely. It'd be a bit dull if we did, wouldn't it? Okay. Well, yes, it would stop. Well, I think we'd have, we'd think we'd stop learning, wouldn't we? Um, you, you did mention the apprenticeship scheme then. Uh, what value has that brought for you? Is it is it something that's important in the way in which coaches are now coming into the organisation? Well, we've only we only launched it. Um, I think it was January, so it's still mm. very new. Um, and it isn't an ILM, but it is a, a. It does lead to a qualification across both boroughs. We've got twenty five people on it, which is sounds wonderful. I love that. Yeah. Um, but but sadly, it's more Westminster than us for take up. So that's that's sad, but 
something we can work on. I think we'll have more take up next time. Mm-hmm. I think, although it's um, because, of course, we have we we've already the money's already there for apprenticeships, so you're not having to pay like you would for the ILM, okay? Because the apprenticeship is part of a bunch of money that all local councils have to. Uh, give over to apprenticeships. So once you find the one you want, it makes a lot of economic sense. Um, And I think that once this first pilot group is done, we will find we'll get more on the second tranche. But it is it is time. It is quite time intensive, more than the ILM. Oh, that's interesting, is it? I mean, I suppose one of the big benefits of it is it is a way of getting money in to use for training Yes, exactly. It's a, it's a way of using up that pocket of money that we have anyway, because if we don't use it, we lose it. Exactly. Yes. So, so it makes a lot of sense. I think we're still trying to work out how to make sure that we get the most out of it. Um, but because of the way that the apprenticeships are all set up, they are they do demand quite a lot of time. So, for example, we had um, an AD who's brilliant and, and really keen on coaching. And she Oh, sorry, uh, assistant director. Oh, right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but when she looked at the requirement around the apprenticeship, she'd had to step back from it. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. It was just too time intensive. Yeah. 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 So. Still, I mean, it'd be very interesting to you know, come back to in the future and find out how, how the apprenticeship scheme worked for you, I must say, because... Um, you know, a lot of organisations now do seem to be making use of that pot of money. Um, for Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. And, and it also, what's lovely about it is that, you know, you have to have, if we've got 25 coaches on the apprenticeship scheme, we need about 75 coaches. <laughs> yes. Ah, okay. So, so that, that's quite, that's quite demanding. Um, but it, it puts a real shift, I think, back to the organisation to say we expect everyone to think coaching is a great thing, mm-hmm. and we believe everyone will benefit from a coach. You know, just have give give some thought to that and think about what it is you want to develop, what do you want to do more of or less of, or what about your career next steps? Or so that's been that's been um, a quite interesting sort of promotional angle. Yes, great because often coaching does need to be marketed I mean people just oh gosh you know not necessarily aware of it and uh, there are all sorts of ways I think that one can do it Um, but it's always but one of the most effective ones of course is is people who've been coached telling their colleagues about how terrific it was (laughs) that tends to be the best way of all isn't it can I ask about organizational learning I mean you mentioned that um, coaches don't necessarily take up the supervision offer but where they do and you have supervision groups meeting regularly um have you found that they do produce any interesting i mean do you garner Mm. themes or anything that come up in 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 supervision groups that can be useful to the organization yes that's what i think one of the added benefits of being able to do it in a group is to be able to um it's almost like um a barometer for how well uh, the the organisation is so mm. so what's coming up and clearly they're obviously confidential so there's nothing of detail shared but thematically over a period of months you can certainly see uh, you know whether there's a, a kind of repeated theme coming through whether there are particular challenges in certain parts of the organisation 
whether there's some sort of bad habits that maybe we could change or put some pressure on in some way. Is it? So it's, I think, a, a sort of intelligence almost, a kind of internal intelligence. Um, that then, of course, as the learning and OD team, we need to be able to feed that back. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, um, the ability to feed it back you have to be a broken record and you have to take the opportunities when it comes on. So, for example, what we've noticed is over the last year, there's been a real attention because of COVID. There's been a real attention to well-being, mental health, um, but also now psychological safety. So mm. the whole bit about what's the difference between teams that kind of do OK and teams that do really well, you know. And so we can think, oh, OK, if these are are kind of themes that we acknowledge that we would want to invest in and support managers with, then what's showing up in our coaching supervision space that might link to that? And so do, you said you had external supervisors. Or yes, we do. That. So yeah. part of the contract, it is part of the contract, therefore, that, that the supervisor feeds back themes to you that have come Yes, up. yes, that's part of um, what we see is sort of added benefit, really, of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that then comes back into our, you know, I mentioned that we meet, we meet as a bi-borough coaching hub as the kind of steering group. Um, so, so that's where that would come. Very good. That's great for a steering group. I think governance is so important. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I'm thinking we probably ought to begin winding up. Um, what we, what we tend to do is at the end, um, Jeremy and I just sort of, highlight really what stood out for us during our conversation Dee. Um, I mean one of the things that stood out for me actually is the use of recordings in supervision and I know you said that you know that's a, a bit of a gift from Covid that that actually because so many um, coaching conversations now happen online then one can record them much more easily um, but I do think that's such a useful tool in supervision I've never in, experienced it myself and I think it's Sounds absolutely great. What about you, Jeremy? Well, I, I think one of the things that did strike me was that you've got a half a dozen qualified coaches uh, inside the organisation, which is a great starting point. Uh, it, it, it sort of says this is important and the organisation recognises its importance. Uh, and, I, and the other one was the uh, the need for 75 um, coaches for your uh, apprenticeship group because that's that's going to happen again next year so uh the idea of having to sell that into the into the organization to say look we need lots and lots of people to be coaches and here's why and and here's the benefit that you'll get what a great story that is to be able to tell year upon year it'd be fascinating to see in a few years time just how many people in the authority have been coached yes yes well, yeah, actually, if I may, may I say something? Indeed, so. So, because one of the things, Catherine, you were saying about the gift of COVID, if you like, um, that was the idea when we started to offer 45 minute sessions. And that completely changed people who engage with coaching. And it became democratized, it became something that anyone could have. And, and they used it. And then they used it and they came back for more and they talked to other people about it. Now, that would never have happened if we hadn't switched to virtual work. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the EMCC UK. 
Together, our aim is to promote good practice and the expectation of good practice in coaching, mentoring and supervision. To learn more about the EMCC UK and to find out about membership, accreditation, events, CPD opportunities and learning resources, visit emccuk.org. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a future episode.